following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 26th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. All right, it's good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege this morning to serve us in our time of reading and teaching from God's Word. And I don't know, I, I, I think it's probably true for some of you maybe in your spiritual journey at some point with the Lord, maybe for some of you even now, but have you ever just looked at your Bible, grabbed your Bible, and, and, and in some way thought to yourself, man, wouldn't it be great if, if this Bible spoke to people like me living in a time of unpredictability and instability politically and culturally and economically. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible actually said something about that? I mean, wouldn't it be great if I could open up the Bible and it would speak directly to living when the ruling empire of the day had very little patience for any kind of threat to its control over its people and their way of life? And wouldn't it be great if I could just go to this thing and, and it spoke to being a follower of Jesus in a time when intolerance towards followers of Jesus was pretty high? Tolerance of their lives and their choices and their values was ironically low in a land that seemed to champion tolerance? Wouldn't it be great if we could just open this thing up and, and it spoke to being a follower of Jesus when the surrounding world saw you not as an asset to human flourishing, but as a threat, as an obstacle. I mean, make no mistake, you woke up this week on the other side of a major Supreme Court ruling of which we are grateful to the Lord for, but you, you, you woke up a Bible-believing, Jesus-following, pro-life Christian as a threat to the empire's understanding of what human flourishing and well-being looks like. You woke up to some people seeing you as the archetype for what the enemy of progress actually looks like, a liability to flourishing. And make no mistake, as this decision now moves out of the realm of the Supreme Court and into the realm of the states and the voices of the people in those states, the voices of such hostility are only going to rise. It's only going to amplify in a manner of speaking. And so while we're eternally grateful, deeply grateful to the Lord for the decision that was rendered, just as we prayed, acknowledging the dignity of all human beings created in the image and likeness of God, it also comes with an awareness, if we're, if we're just present with it, an awareness to a deep sadness too that this issue brings with it such a divide, such hostility, such animosity. And you, you woke up in the eyes of some people in the world in which we live, the, the archetype of the enemy of actual progress and flourishing. And wouldn't it be great if we could open up our Bibles and somehow or another it, it spoke to living as a follower of Jesus in a context and circumstances like that? Well, the good news is that that's the very thing God's word does, in particular when we open it up to Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, a city that was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Historically, if you were with us last week when we looked at it, known as the second Rome, the church to whom Paul wrote this letter to were facing those very circumstances. And so many of us have walked around with this idea that the Bible is just a, a dusty old relic of irrelevance, but you couldn't be further from the truth. 
And so as we open up God's word together, we consider this letter that Paul wrote to this church and now God has preserved for us even now, I think you'll begin to realize that at some of the most profound levels of human existence and living, between the first century and the 21st century, there's really nothing new under the sun. The pressures, the temptations, the fears, They're all very much the same. If you weren't with us last week, kind of getting to this as we looked at how this church came to be and what this church was facing, let me catch you up as we jump into the letter this morning. Paul and his team have been commissioned by God to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the Gentiles. And through a vision that God showed Paul, they decided now to take this vision. God called them to take it west towards Rome to Macedonia. So Paul and his team, Silas and Timothy at this point, were traveling along the Ignatian Way, the major highway that Rome had built, connecting Rome and Constantinople. And they were traveling along that highway, stopping at the major cities along the way. And they came to Thessalonica, which in that time was the capital of the Macedonian region. Huge city, very prosperous, prosperous city, sat on the highway and on the edge of the Aegean Sea. Very important city to the Roman Empire, very important city to that entire region. And when they got there, Paul and his team began preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And Luke records for us in Acts chapter 17 that some who were listening were persuaded to believe, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The church was born in Thessalonica through the preaching of the gospel in a city that was feeding deeply on the benevolence of the Roman Empire and Caesar himself. They were prosperous, promiscuous, and deeply, deeply loyal to Caesar. You see, loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to the empire was the ticket to all the blessing and the comfort that they knew in that city. And as we saw last week, the gospel of Jesus that he is the true Lord, that he has established his kingdom here on earth, and it is to be as it is in heaven, and he is calling all people to repent and to believe in him. That gospel, that message about the event of Jesus and his kingdom was seen as a threat to Caesar and his kingdom. It was tantamount to treason. And all who would receive that message and believe that message and begin to follow Jesus as Lord, as King, as Savior, did it at great risk to themselves. Risk to their physical well-being, risk to their economic well-being, risk to their social well-being. They would lose friends, they would lose families, they would lose jobs. Some of you have faced similar realities in following Jesus. Some of you very recently have faced similar pressures in your own livelihoods over the last couple of years. And there's nothing entirely new under the sun. This church in receiving the gospel and beginning to follow Jesus was facing very similar pressures. And they were seen as a risk. They were seen as a threat so much so that they ran Paul out of town, if you remember the story. Paul and his team had to leave, and they went to Berea, 40 miles down the way. But the folks in Thessalonica who were mad at him, who were telling the authorities that he was delivering this treasonous message against Caesar, they chased Paul to Berea. He got to Berea. They chased him there. So he had to leave Berea at night. And so he made his way to Athens, and then we read that he made his way to Corinth. And while he was in Corinth, He was thinking particularly of this church in Thessalonica that they had planted, they had seen happen, they had seen God give birth to, and the people they had loved. And Paul began to wonder as a brother in Christ, as a pastor, as a friend, how are they doing? Are they okay? I mean, hostility was rising. Pressure against them was fierce. It had run Paul out of town, but he had left them there. Are they okay? Are they still around? What's going on? And so Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what was happening. And Timothy comes back. We'll we'll read about this later on in the letter. Timothy comes back to Paul in Corinth, and he delivers this good report about how well the people are doing in the midst of tremendous persecution. Not just persecution for, for, for persecution's sake, but persecution because they're following Jesus. 
in the midst of tremendous suffering, pressure, and temptation, at great risk to themselves, they were doing well. And this brought deep joy to Paul's heart. And it's at the news that Timothy brings about this church that Paul then begins to write this letter that we know of as 1 Thessalonians. It's in response to that report. And he writes this letter to a church about what it is to thrive in a time and a place that is at best indifferent to you and at worst hostile towards you. A letter to a church in a time and a place offering encouragement and clarity about what a living faith in Jesus looks like. And it's a letter, as we read it, that will offer a picture of a people, of a church, that is remaining steadfast to the vision and the hope of the gospel. If you like the word or don't like the word, it still proves true. It's a very relevant letter for us even now. In the 21st century, in Richmond, Virginia, right here. And so we're going to begin to work our way through this letter starting this morning. And my prayer is that God will give us ears to hear him in this letter and the courage, the courage to live according to what he shows So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the letter of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. If you want to use one of the Bibles that's on the pew in front of you, you can find the letter on page 986. And as you're turning there, I will tell you there's, there's nothing particularly unique about the structure of the letter. It is a letter, a letter that was written to a people. And in some ways, it conforms to every contemporary convention of a letter in its day especially in the way that it begins. It begins by noting the author of the letter. It begins by noting the recipients of the letter. And it begins by formally greeting those that it's being written to. But as common as it may seem, there's a lot more there than meets the eye. So let's begin this letter this way. And I'll just tell you now so you're not surprised, we're not going to get past verse 1. Now, we'll do more than one verse at a time in the coming weeks, but we're just going to set a stage this morning. It's important. We're not going to get past verse 1, but here's how it begins. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to stop it right there for now, right? It's ordinary on the surface. It seems absolutely standard. The author is identified, the recipients are identified, but behind the words is an extraordinary significance for the church in Thessalonica. Behind the words even now is extraordinary significance for you and I. You slow down and and begin to read it and consider what's being said. Remembering, right? In those days, writing these letters, it, it wasn't digital. They weren't on their computer typing something, changing their mind, erasing it, retyping it. They didn't even have, you know, pencils with erasers or erasable pens. Everything was precious. Every stroke mattered. Every letter mattered. Every word mattered. It was all careful. It was all very intentional because you couldn't just start over. Slow down. In the very beginning, in what seems like a very ordinary convention, we get from the very beginning a taste of a very extraordinary, God-born humility that's actually going to mark the way the letter unfolds. And it doesn't seem like much, but when Paul makes sure at the very beginning of this letter that the church in Thessalonica knows that this letter is not simply from himself, but from Silvanus, or, or Silas, he's known as, and Timothy, that they were the ones who labored with Paul in Thessalonica, who loved that church at great cost and risk to themselves, that this letter was not simply from Paul, but from them. That's huge. Why? Because make no mistake about it, Paul was very much the man. Undoubtedly. 
Prior to his conversion, Paul, or Saul, as we learned about him last week, had a reputation that stretched across the region. Pharisee of Pharisees, teacher of teachers, zeal for the law above all of his peers. People knew Saul. He had quite the reputation. After his conversion, his reputation only expanded. Fair to say, when the team rolls into Thessalonica, and the reasoning and explaining and proclaiming begins in the synagogue, it was Paul that did the majority of it. Paul did most of the teaching. Paul did most of the explaining. Paul did most of the reasoning. But as he writes this letter, and even in the acknowledgement and the opening, Paul is clear to remind that church then, just as God preserves it, to remind even us now that the work of the gospel and the birth and the health of a church is never a one-man job. There was so much that God was able to accomplish in the smallest amount of time in Thessalonica because Paul was with Silvanus and Timothy. That is as true now for us as it was for the church then. The story of this church, if we had a morning to spend for the last 14 years to walk through it, the story of this church and the story of every other church around this city, around this state, and around the world that's gathering together to hear the gospel and to read God's word this morning is never the story of one person. It's never even the story of two people. It's always the story of what God has done through his people in a place. In fact, over the years, as we've had the privilege to spend time with church planters throughout the years and new pastors to churches throughout the years, one of the things that's become most important in helping them to begin to understand the church that God has called them to and the service and the ministry he's directed them to is to make a change of language in how they talk about it. It's not uncommon to be around church planters and pastors and to hear them talk about my church and my staff and my members and my people and my programs and my this and my that. And it's a simple change in language, but it's a very real change in heart and perspective. It's not yours. And helping them to realize not only is it not yours, but it never was yours. And what's happening there is not due to what you did. It's a simple change in language that seems fundamental, but it, it speaks and begins to work a much deeper change in the heart. Even now in a church like ours, that's 14 years past the earliest days like the church in Thessalonica. Even now though, it's very easy for a church to settle into this weird kind of unspoken contract that basically says the, the well-being of the church and the health of the church is the responsibility of only a select group of people. The elders, the staff, the ministry leaders, it's this unspoken contract the church makes with each other if you don't pay attention to it and try to push back against it. This is, all of this is your responsibility. This small group of people. But that has never been God's intention for his people. It's an unspoken contract that forgets that the responsibility for the health of God's people is on one another for one another. That it requires everyone. In fact, this is going to be a big theme in the letter that Paul is going to be coming back to. So I'm not going to belabor the point on it this morning. But it's a very important reality. And I think even beyond the context of the local church and, and the bounds of the local church, in our own day, I think as I thought about it and began to kind of read it like a human, what a simple attribution at the beginning of the letter actually says and, and actually means and how it reflects this deeper humility in Paul that he realized and he wanted them to know that what was happening and what had happened wasn't all because of him. I, I thought about us beyond even the context of the local church and thought about the day and age in which we live where there's such a pressing need, it seems like, on all sides to be seen a certain way, to be seen as having arrived at where you are, to be seen as so accomplished in a particular thing 
Everything around us offers at our fingertips and within the palm of our hand an opportunity for the world, not just the people closest to us, but for the world to see us in a particular way, having done a particular thing and arrived at a particular place that we so casually forget all that God had done and the people he had put in our place to get us there. The opportunities that people afforded us, the mentoring that people gave us, the chances that were offered to us through people who took great sacrifice to themselves of their time and their situation, all that went into it, right? We live in a time and a day and an age where we're so pressured to present ourselves as having arrived and taking all of the credit for our arrival to ourselves while any kind of responsibility or blame for anything negative gets easily passed onto someone else. And so I thought about Paul's very simple attribution and thought, well, what would it be like if we were to be a people who, like Paul, encouraged the church in Rome to become, that, that sought to outdo one another in showing honor, and that rather than trying to outdo one another in our sense of accomplishment and arrival, and we could spend all morning detailing the ways we do that. Rather than trying to outdo one another in our presentations of our righteousness and our arrival, what if we sought to outdo one another in showing honor, eager to acknowledge all who may be invested in getting us to where we are, affording the opportunity that we have, helped us understand what we've come to learn that we're able to pass on to others? What if that became the marker of this people? It seems like a central, simple attribution, Paul, Silvanus, and, and, and Timothy, but if you slow down and consider the author and consider the context, you see there's something much deeper at work. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit and the, the birth and the outgrowth, the fruit of that work and a profound taste of real humility in Paul. But he keeps going. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, those are the authors to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it starts with this taste of genuine humility, but now, even in addressing a particular people, in delineating who this letter is for, there's more at work than meets the eye. Even here, Paul is quick to ground the recipients of this letter in their eternal identity to the church of the Thessalonians. You might remember if you were with us last week or you heard last week's sermon that we spent some time when we were talking about the gospel. We're very clear that gospel, the actual word, what it actually is, news of an event that brings great joy, was a very common reality in Paul's day. It was a political word. It was a cultural word. There were all kinds of gospels at play, all kinds of news about events that brought great joy that were meant to mark a change in the way people lived. Well, the word church is very much in the same vein as the word gospel. It was a normal word. It was a common word. It simply means called out assembly. And there were all kinds of called out assemblies. There were political assemblies, there were social assemblies, there were cultural assemblies, there were Grecian assemblies, there were Roman assemblies, there were all kinds of called out assemblies of people, all kinds of, of organizations or gatherings that use this word church. But when Paul uses this word to speak to this people, he's going to help them see that they are a called out assembly unlike any other around them. To the church, the called out assembly that is rooted in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That changes everything about who they are, how they understand who they are, and how they actually live. It changes their sense of identity. I mean, for one thing, imagine being a Gentile in that day, now part of this church having heard the gospel. One of these believing Greeks that has now heard the message of Jesus and, and repented of your sins and you're following Jesus as Lord and you hear this letter being read to you and this word being applied to you, this called out assembly, 
in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you realize that that word, that word church, is used in all the Old Testament scriptures you've heard being read in the synagogues that were originally written in Hebrew and translated to Greek. And every time in Greek that that word is used in the Old Testament, it's speaking of God's chosen people. It's speaking of Israel his people of blessing gathered together at the the synagogue or at the temple or at the tabernacle to worship the Lord. And now Paul is saying, you're part of that group. He's using that word to talk about you. Israel's story is now your story because of Jesus. The expansiveness of God's promises have now reached this apex in Jesus and you've been brought into it. This understanding begins to change everything for them. A new identity is being given to them. It's separate than every other identity offered to them and every other assembly and every other group that they can find themselves a part of. But it's not just a new identity. It's It's speaking to the reality of where they find their life and their vitality. You see, when you read this, and he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that little word in is crucial. It's crucial. Right? You might remember, if you've been with us for a while, we spent some time last year in John chapter 15, and in John chapter 15, Jesus speaks of of his disciples being in him, and he uses the metaphor of branches being in a vine. They were connected by union to the vine, and it's through that vine that they receive their life and vitality. Paul would write to the church, and he would say that as followers of Jesus, we had union with Jesus like members of the body have to the body like legs and arms have to the body, that we're in Jesus the way our members are in our body. This in is crucial in understanding what Paul is saying about this church. They find not only their origin, but their very life and vitality in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are rooted in him. They get their life from him. They draw their life from him, their vitality from him. This assembly of called out people, the church, is unlike any other assembly, political, social, or cultural. This assembly, the church, because we belong to God, find our origin in God's action and the source of our life and vitality in our union with him and our vitality with him changes the fundamental way we understand who we are and how we live. This is what Paul is reminding this church of. Even as we read it now, some number of centuries later, we, like the church of the Thessalonians, are reminded that we are the product of God's divine initiative. Not any action or wisdom of our own. Like this church in Thessalonica, our identity is rooted in who we are because of God's work. And because of that, we are His. And we are in Him. We're not simply a a lifeless organization like every other organization around us. We are literally a living organism. Now that presents a a number of interesting challenges that we face on a day in and day out basis because on one hand we very literally are an organization. We have responsibilities to members and we have responsibilities to one another and there are details and things that have to be worked out but at the root of it, we are a living organism. We find our sense of identity our understanding of our life and our vitality in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it for a second. Just consider, put yourself in in their position. It's not a far stretch to think about. You're there, you're in Thessalonica. The people around you, the culture around you now because of your commitment to Jesus, your faith in him, see you as a threat. 
you're believing a treasonous message about another king and another kingdom. You may very well have lost your family. You may very well have lost your friends. Most certainly, you've probably lost your job. Your way of life, the comforts that you may have enjoyed at the hand of the empire are being removed. There's pressure on you from every direction all around. Paul isn't with you. He's gone. And here comes this letter. And in the very beginning, there's nothing simple or normal or they wouldn't rush through it at all. They would take their time on every single word and they would hear such a gracious, loving, anchoring reminder of who they are. You're his. You're in him. You're in the most secure and most stable hands you could ever imagine. Your confidence, your courage, your hope, your vitality is located in him. It's nourished by him. What a loving, anchoring reminder. Believe me, when they heard it, they didn't rush past. When they heard Paul address them as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it did something to their heart because they were reminded again of whose they were, where their identity and vitality comes from. Friends, our confidence to face today and any courage to live for Jesus tomorrow and the vitality that we need to thrive in the land in which we live, it's not found as the church in having a series of catchy, memorable mission statements. They're good. They're important. That's not where it comes from. It's not in having cutting-edge websites and technology, although helpful and, and useful at times. It's, it's not where this stuff is found. It's not found in super cohesive and comprehensive programming and tight organizational hierarchies and structures. It's not found in identifying the next cause or the next thing or the next place or the next place. That's not where any of this stuff is found. That's not where our identity is found. It's not where our courage is found. It's not where our hope is found. It's not where our vitality is found. Those things are rooted in the fact that we, as a called out people, are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rooted in our identity as his, and those things all flow out of our union with him. We've just read the authors and the recipients, and already you can begin to see that in the mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul, the gospel informs everything that he writes, including hello. Because that's what he writes next. And I was thinking about it, and we all have examples of it in, in our everyday life, but there are times when hello is more than just hello, right? Married folk, you remember when hello was more than just hello when you were trying to meet somebody, right? Sometimes hello is more than just hello. And that's what's going on here, because there's quite a hello that Paul gives them. Grace to you and peace. Even Paul's hello is directing the attention of their hearts back to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. I don't know if you're familiar with a man named J.I. Packer. I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with Packer. We lost him to the Lord a few years ago, but if you've never read Packer's book, Knowing God, I would encourage you to grab a copy and read it. I promise you it'll be worth your time. And In that book, Packer said this about God's grace. God's grace is God's love in action towards people who merited the opposite of love. Now, I'll, I'll read the rest of it in a second, but I want you to understand the people that I'm going to read to you and quote to you 
are not people who are given to hyperbole. Right? Most of these scholars are, are not given to hyperbole. They're given to precision, right? So listen to what he says. God's grace is God's love in action towards people who merited the opposite of love. This one word contains within itself the whole of New Testament theology. Gordon Fee, who's a contemporary of Packer's, said the sum total of God's activity towards us. Again, not a man given to hyperbole, but the sum total of God's activity towards us is found in the word grace. Grace to you, Paul says. It's a word, if you've grown up in the church, or even been around this church for a period of time, you've heard in all kinds of contexts and in all kinds of ways. And literally, just to give you the very simplest thing, gr- grammatically, the word that's translated as grace here, the Greek word behind it, it has a root or it comes from a cognate that just means that which brings joy. Again, we didn't make up words. These are words that were used in common in the everyday realities of life and the time in which they were written. It means that which brings joy. And as Paul's writing this letter to this church in the Christian context, what brings joy? Like the news of the free act of God who through his son Jesus took upon himself the judgment that you and I deserved for our sin, who paid the price that our sin required, making the free gift of salvation available to all who would receive it. What brings greater joy than that? Grace to you. Remember, Jesus' death was the result of grace. Did you ever think about that? Jesus' very death was the result of grace. God's love towards sinners. Jesus' death that paid the price for your sins was the result of God's grace towards you. Grace is not the result of Jesus' death. Even his actions towards you in his son flow from his grace. And now for all who have received him, grace means that your daily relationship with God is based on Jesus' eternal merit. Not yours. And not your performance. Grace means not only the gift of salvation available to you by Jesus, but also the ongoing divine work by his spirit that shapes you and changes you and makes you more like his son and shapes the the tastes and the desires and the affections of your heart so that living like Jesus is a joyful reality to you. Nobody captures the comprehensiveness of, of grace and its impact quite like Jerry Bridges. Bridges says we are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, he said, we are glorified by grace. Again, a man not given to hyperbole, the entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. Grace to you and peace. Because it's this grace through Jesus that actually brings peace. You see, there is no peace with God without having received grace from God. That's how it works. There is no peace with God without having received grace from God. It's because of grace from God that all who believe into Jesus for salvation now have peace with God. You see, if you were with us before we went, started through this series a little while ago, we spent a couple of months on the first three chapters of Genesis. And you might remember, ever since the garden and Adam and Eve's decision to take the authority of their lives upon themselves, there has been a holy hostility against our sin. 
a holy hostility against our treason. And in Jesus, God's holy hostility was satisfied. God's hostility and judgment and wrath for our sin was placed on his son in our place. And for all who would believe, there is now peace. Peace with God, the removal of the hostility because his wrath was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. Grace to you brings peace with God. That's where the peace comes from. And peace with God precedes living in the peace of God. See, oftentimes, if you're familiar with the Bible and you read these letters, you always just blow right past, you know, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, the church in Thessalonica, you blow right past it to get to the meat of the good stuff, right? And if you ever do slow down and you, and you read these greetings, you read these hellos, and you read grace to you and peace, more often than not, what comes to mind in your, in your mind and your heart is living with the peace of God, the comfort of God, the, the peace of, uh, that passes all understanding, but you've got to understand the peace of God is the fruit of having peace with God. It's not the other way around. And there's no peace with God without having received grace from God. So even his hello is really no normal hello. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. You see, for Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, there is no greater blessing that they could desire for this church. There's no greater blessing that they could communicate to this church. There's no greater sense of encouragement that they could offer this church than this. And, and I wholeheartedly agree with them in it. I mean, there are so many things that I want for us as a church in how we live. There are so many things I want for myself and so many things I want for my family and so many things I want God to do and the ways to, to shape us and, and change us. But, but here's the thing. We're going to talk about all of that in the coming weeks because Paul talks about it. But none of the things, none of them are found apart from enjoying Jesus and enjoying God's grace, and enjoying the peace that comes through Jesus. See, if you forget this in the biblical sense, the biblical sense meaning not just forgetting it in your mind, but no longer faithfully living according to it in your heart. You can confess it with your mouth all you want, but forgetting it faithfully in your heart and how you live. You forget this. You forget the sense of identity, even as a corporate people, of who you are in God and the Lord Jesus Christ by his work, having received his grace and peace with him, now being made through Jesus. And that's where your identity and that's where your vitality comes from. And there is where the courage and the confidence and the hope and the steadfastness is born. Forget that. Move that to the periphery. Move that down to the secondary level, and I can promise you this in time. You will lose the vitality. You will lose the hope. You will lose the endurance and steadfastness. You will lose the courage of your convictions. It'll happen corporately as much as it will happen individually. Francis Schaeffer was touching on this back in the 70s, and he wrote in his book, No Little People. Schaeffer said this. He said, is it not amazing? Though we know the power of God, the Holy Spirit, can be ours, we still imitate the world's wisdom, trust its forms of publicity and noise, and imitate its ways of manipulating men. If we try to influence the world by using its methods... We are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. Listen to what he says. If we put activity, even good activity, 
at the center rather than trusting God. Like, if we put activity, even good activity, at the center of our understanding of who we are, if it becomes that sense of identity and vitality, all of our activity and what we do and how we present ourselves, if that becomes the place where we go to understand who we are and not the grace and peace to us from God through Jesus as his people, if we push that to the periphery, if we make that secondary, Schaefer said, then there may be power but it's power of the world. We will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, as a gathered body of Christians, you might be busy. You might get some things done. You might even fill up some seats for a while. But in the long run, what you're doing is you're forfeiting the identity that is yours by grace and the vitality that is meant to withhold you and enable you by the very spirit of God in your union with Jesus. You're forfeiting that which matters in the long run. But he's not done. Schaefer said the key question is this. As we work for God in this fallen world, a world in the 21st century very similar in some ways to what the church in Thessalonica was facing. Where being a follower of Jesus puts you in a category for some people who see you as the opposition to progress. That you're in the way of real flourishing. That for some people in the world, you become the object of their hostility for your confession and your allegiance to Jesus. Schaefer said, as we work for God in this world, what are we trusting in? I think it's the same question that Paul was concerned about when he thought about this church. I think it's why his hello is more than just a hello. What they were trusting in, what they were leaning into, what they were finding their sense and source of identity and vitality from was of utmost importance to Paul. It's of utmost importance to us. So Schaefer says again, to trust in particular methods is to copy the world and to remove ourselves from the tremendous promise that we have something different. We're not a called out people like every other assembly of called out people. Our origin is different. Our identity is different. Our purpose is different. Our source of vitality is different. Our source of power is different. Right, to trust in particular methods is to copy the world and remove ourselves from the tremendous promise that we have something different, the power of the Holy Spirit rather than the power of human technique. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. When is a hello more than just a hello? Well, in Paul's mind, when it takes the eyes of your heart and directly fixes them on enjoying Jesus, on enjoying the grace of God to you through Jesus, on enjoying the peace you have with God because of Jesus. And so as one writer said, the gospel makes a simple greeting an elegant reminder of the greatest gift. It's so true. We haven't made it through hello, but the gospel is going to set the tone for the entirety of the letter. The gospel not only informs the greeting, the gospel is going to inform everything that Paul is going to say. And so we belabored the point because as you go back to the letter, the gospel and the grace of God to you through the person and work of Jesus and the peace with God that you have because of his grace towards you in his son is going to be the lens through which everything is going to be read. It's the way that Paul sees the world. It's the way he sees the church. And it's the way we're going to have to understand what he is communicating. It so informs the entirety of everything that he says that he actually concludes the letter the same way he began it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we are asking this morning for a miracle. We are asking this morning for you to do what only you can do in each and every single one of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We are asking that you would strengthen us by your grace, that you would make us certain, certain of your grace towards us in Jesus, that you would make us dependent upon your grace, that you would help us to see where we have tried to live independent of your grace and dependent upon ourselves, and that you would bring us to our knees and make us dependent upon you again for your grace. We're asking that you would make us different by your grace. And we ask that you would make us freshly amazed by grace just as a result of our time together in this letter over the next couple of weeks. May we be freshly and newly amazed by grace. Lord, all of us, every single one of us, need your grace daily. Whatever part of our hearts has believed that we just need a weekly injection of the good news of your grace and peace and we'll go off on our life for the rest of the week in our own wisdom and our own strength and our own power and come back in and get a new shot. Lord, bring us again to our knees to see our daily, hourly dependence upon your grace to us. And so this morning, Lord, as we prepare to respond to your word, we're asking that you would do the work in our hearts to help our response not be just a mere formality. It is something we're accustomed to and patterned to do and habit to do. It's not just a formality, but for, for those who, who have tasted of your grace in Jesus and, and believed upon your Son as Savior and King, that as we come forward and take bread, remembering his body broken in our place, we, we dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sin. Remind us new that it is grace that we are feasting on. It is grace that has come to us and is coming to us again by your Son. And it's peace now that we have with you and are resting in and confident in because of your grace to us through him. So this morning we ask, we ask for a miracle. It can only happen by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. So we ask that you would do that for Jesus' name's sake, for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.